0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to Lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio Classics, where we listen to a classic episode the new intro lets you kind of know what's going on behind the scenes, how we came across this. Now, our first story was interesting because I just stumbled across it. The Pine Gap Group, it, it's kind of hard to do this if you... I don't... This is a reason why I don't like doing inside jokes and stuff like that, because when you take the episodes out of context, it can make it a little hard to, to get it. I think I give a good intro to it, but let me see if I can kind of make it a little more succinct. There was this crazy woman we had covered a couple episodes before this who was casting these spells or building some sort of force field or or what, some other made-up nonsense. And she was trying to protect us from vampires and werewolves and golems and ghouls and, and snakes with eight heads and the Pine Gap group and then sorcerers. And I remember going, what in the world is the Pine Gap group? and How are they on the level of a werewolf? I'd never heard of these before. Well, one of you awesome dudes let me know that this was a conspiracy theory in Australia. It's basically their Area 51, their Stargate SG-1 underneath the mountain weirdo complex that was had portals to Mars and laser beams and all sorts of stuff. But it was just this weird conspiracy theory. And, and to Australians, I'm sure it's a big threat. It's their Area 51, but I remember just thinking, is it still equivalent to a werewolf? I don't think so. But so our first story was just a weird conspiracy theory. That just kind of popped out of nowhere. If, it, if I had stumbled across it and it wasn't surrounded by werewolves, probably wouldn't have even noticed it. But an interesting conspiracy theory nonetheless. And then the second story is a story that I knew I wanted to do really early on in, in the run of the show. I don't know why it took me so long to do it, but I'm glad that I did wait this long because obviously the, the early episodes are far rougher. I've toyed with the idea of reinvestigating some of the older stories, but I've never really found any additional information on any of them. But when I listen to the older episodes, I know a lot of you guys like the early, early episodes. I'm not a huge fan of them. I I don't like the delivery and stuff like that. So I'm actually glad that I waited so long to do this because I think this is when the show really hit the stride. I think in the late hundreds, the show really hit a stride. I love this story. It's terrifying. Is Freddy Krueger based on a true story? It's funny because if you listen to the director's commentary for Nightmare on Elm Street, and I mentioned this in the episode. I remember I was just, I love director's commentary. I was listening to it, and he tells his story of how Freddy Krueger is based on a real dream demon, and it just makes your imagination run wild, and the hardest part of this story wasn't telling it because I'd, I'd heard this story a long time ago from Wes Craven directly on the commentary. It was a hard... Tracking down the uh, links again, finding these articles in the LA Times and things like that. I was kind of nervous going into the story because this is a story I told people in real life throughout the years. Hey, buddy, have you ever heard of this stuff? It's funny because I always pitch the show like this. Imagine you're at work or you're at school or you're sitting on your couch and your buddy walks in and goes, Dude, you won't believe what I read on the internet. That's what this show is. That's what this show is. A lot of complaints about the show. Again, I don't really read complaints. But what I've gotten from the first two sentences, generally, is that it's not serious enough. But the show was never meant to be a serious show. Sometimes the topics get serious. And I do the research that I do because I I have to back it up. But... The idea of the show is your buddy showing up and being like, dude, you won't believe what happened. And the reason why I think the show works is because I've been doing that my entire life. I would walk into work and be like, dude, did you know Freddy Krueger is based on a true story? And so I was telling that story for two decades. I've been telling that story honestly since I saw the commentary like in the early 2000s. So when I had to prepare for this story, I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to find the links. But I did. And I now present to you, I think, one of the most terrifying stories. It's not as scary as the Michael Taylor one, if you listened to that one yesterday. Not nearly as scary as that, but I definitely think it's a scary it's scary episode in and of itself, and the implications are scary. Freddy Krueger's real, or something like Freddy Krueger's real, all bets are off to what other boogeyman could be out there. So let's listen to episode 218. Is Freddy Krueger based on a real demon? Spoiler alert, yeah, he is. The Pine Gap Group. A simple CIA monitoring station, or a gateway to other realities. And then we take a look at the fascinating true story behind the Nightmare on Elm Street. Is there really a Freddy Krueger-type demon that kills people in their sleep? We'll find out today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I'm so so sweaty. We've reached... Guys, it has almost been a year. This podcast has almost been on for an entire year. We started in June. I think it was June 14th? June 15th? Almost a full year of Dead Rabbit Radio. So I, I'm super stoked about that. Like, I think in the back of my head, I always thought, oh, you know, I'm gonna do, I think in the early ones, I go, oh, I'm gonna do 100 episodes and we'll go from there. Almost a year, guys. Thank you so much for being part of this journey, too. Like, you guys are really the driver of this journey. Speaking of which, I wanna start highlighting some more fan art. Today we have something kinda interesting. It'll be in the show notes if you wanna click on it. I'm gonna just wanna have a gallery on there. And then on YouTube, you'll see it up here. Merrick via Facebook went to. I did a story a while back about the uh, the uh, Finn McCool, the giants who were basically like rolling around in the dirt. They weren't doing that. There were giants who were fighting, and then one decided to become a baby and all that stuff. He went to the cave where this story apparently took place. Like he found the Giants' Causeway. It's not like he was in Indiana Jones, it's like it's on a map, but he went to the Giants' Causeway in Scotland or Ireland, one of the two, and took a photo of it. And sent it. And he goes, I went here because of the episode. Now, I don't think he was traveling from, like, Alabama. I'm pretty sure he lived in the area. He's just like, oh, that's across the street. But still, it's awesome. Like, again, I'm, I never really thought the show would get like that. Where people would hear something, and it would inspire them to go on a little trip. And that's amazing. So thank you, Merrick. Thanks for that great photo. And we, we just have a ton of fan art we're going to be showing in the coming days and weeks and years as well. But let's go ahead and get started with our first story. Now, our first story is interesting because I actually was joking about it, and I go, who are these guys? What puts them on the same level as a vampire or a werewolf? I wasn't aware of what the Pine Gap group was, but when I was reading Sherry Shriner's prayer, she was telling everyone to be protected by this stuff. She mentioned, along with witch doctors and Kabbalah priests and saint worshipers, the Pine Gap group. So, of course, I was curious to what they were. At that point, I was just reading it I was reading that live, like I hadn't gotten that far into the prayer before, so I really was like, who are these dudes? Alex F. on YouTube was like, it's actually a real, because I said it's either totally fake or a super obscure conspiracy, and Alex F. on YouTube said, it is real. The Pine Gap is a base in Australia, it's a satellite observation base. So I started to look into what the Pine Gap Group was. So thank you, Alex, for that. And he's right. It is a satellite observation base in Australia, and it is so much more. So bizarre. So bizarre. What it is, is that parent. And as I'm reading up on it, it's not a lot of information on it. Not, even the conspiracy stuff is very, very sparse. But I'm reading up about the Pine Gap facility in Australia, and I'm like, why does the U.S., why does the CIA, the NSA, and the NRO, which is the National Reconnaissance Organization, why do they have a facility in Australia? Now, Australia is an allied country to the United States. They're part of the Seven Eyes, that's uh, seven countries that we allow information to be shared with. And controversially, anyways, it causes controversy because... Australia can't spy on its own citizens, and America can't spy on its own citizens, but what happens is the Americans will spy on the Australian citizens and then give the information to the Australian government. That all came out during the Seven Eyes revelation. So it makes sense that we would have an observation base there, but I'm still thinking, like, why Australia? It turns out the Pine Gap, it's interesting because there's two levels to this. One, there's the legit conspiracies, like Seven Eyes. And then there's the wackadoo nut job Sherry Shriner stuff. And I actually, to be fair, I think Sherry Shriner is more and the realistic stuff a bit, but the Pine Gap facility in Australia, it's in a perfect location. It's one, it's in the middle of nowhere. So you don't have to worry about people stumbling across it. Two, it gives it access to what one third of the satellites that cover the globe. And what it, it basically picks up cell phone calls. It picks up. Uh, Satellite transmissions, it picks up anti-aircraft and anti-missile frequencies. So they kind of know where all this stuff is moving. So what's covered is all of China. All of basically is Asia. Anything that's satellite-based coming in or out of Asia is intercepted by Pine Gap. The Asian part of Russia, so the Tatar Empire stuff, is all intercepted. I'm sure there's only like five satellites (laughs) beaming down stuff to Siberia, but they can get them. And then Middle East. So originally it was set up there in the 60s as a Cold War preventative measure. It could tell if missiles were being launched. And then it was being used to ensure that the nuclear treaties were intact. But then after 2001, September 12th, 2001, they basically pivoted their entire operation to spying on everybody. Now we get into the weirdo stuff. Like, and I think that is interesting. I had a lot of fun researching that stuff because they do have, we do have issues with government spying on their own citizens. Wink, wink. They're spying on other people's citizens, but just trading information. And Edward Snowden mentioned the Pine Gap group, the Pine Gap facility specifically when all this was going on. But let's get into the weirdo stuff. So in December 22nd, 1989, there's three hunters out in that area because it's the wilderness of Australia. They're out there, they're hunting, they're actually getting ready to come back from their hunting trip. And they see what appears to be a man-made camouflage door. A hangar door in the middle of this field. And they're like, this is out of place. This is totally not, it's basically like a giant metal hangar door with like a, a, a bunch of leaves thrown on top of it. And they're like, and they're, they obviously are like, that's not something that should be here. There shouldn't be a big hangar door out here in the middle of nowhere. But then the door opens, and a large silver disc flies out of the hangar and flies away. And they're totally stunned by it. They can't believe what they just saw. They actually tell a friend of theirs who's a university professor, who ends up telling a local UFOologist, and that's how we know about it. So you're like, oh, okay, cool, UFOs are involved in Pike oh, I'm not finished yet, not finished yet. That would have been interesting enough. In 1980, a police officer was helping the search for a missing child, How a child goes missing in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the outback, who knows? But apparently he's looking for... That kid must be like a track star. He's like leaving Melbourne, just running, just running for days. Actually, maybe he got lost from the facility, but he's like this mutant kid. He's Bat Boy, they're trying to catch. He, 1980, he's in the area of the Pine Gap facility, looking for this kid, sees a camouflage door. What? He then sees what he describes as several bathtub-shaped objects. So you figure like a, just like a, you guys know what a bathtub looks like. I don't have to explain it. Unless you have like a fancy dancy bathtub that's like, what if it's one of those standing bathtubs that the elderly people use? He sees a couple of those fly out too. Anyways, he sees several bathtub-shaped objects fly out of the man-made covered door and he's watching them fly across the landscape and then he goes in the hills. I saw basically a black void open up and they flew into that. So not another door. It was something that seemed unreal to him. Traveled across the landscape, went into there. 1973. There's a report, again, some hunters by the Pine Gap facility. They describe this. A blue beam shoots up into the sky from inside the base. So they see the perimeter of the base and they see a blue beam shoot up. And then a UFO, like a straight up traditional disc shaped metallic disc UFO, begins hovering over the base. About a thousand feet in the air. And after a period of time. I think it was a couple of minutes. It then flies away. When they report that. 1984. Boom. One big blue beam of light. Spotted coming out of the base. This time people see a weird cloud appear above the base. And several triangle shaped UFOs. And a cigar shaped UFO appear. And then either leave or disappear they're just gone again after a period of time then the cloud sits there for a while and then disappears so it's interesting because obviously obviously those things make you think uh, they made me think of project blue beam where it's not necessarily that there were ufos floating over the space but the blue beam was a holographic projector making the ufos appear to be there Some people have said that the UFO seemed to go where the beam moved, like the beam was shifting around the base. So they were saying the beam was controlling the UFO. But again, it could have been that the blue beam was actually the holographic projector putting this up in the sky. Now, I poo-pooed all over Project Blue Beam in the episode that I covered that. And these stories of the blue beam and the UFO... Are all around the same time that the Project Bluebeam theory was getting started. But again, Project Bluebeam was fairly, fairly obscure back then. Like, back then, a lot of you guys, a lot of you younger kids have to realize that back then, to be involved in conspiracy theories, you had to track down books and magazines. And you're like, of course, Jason. But it was different. Like, you only had access to the conspiracy information That you stumbled across. There was no real cross-referencing. Unless you were Giles from Buffy. Like you read a magazine or a book. And that was pretty much all the information you had. Unless you could find another book. On that subject. There was no Amazon. Your libraries didn't cover this stuff. So the fact that these people are telling stories. About these blue beams and these UFOs appearing. It's possible that this was where. The guy who created blue beam. Came up with his idea. It's possible that blue beam has an element of truth in it. The weird cloud would be what you would project the image on, but I—I I mean, again, that's so funny because that episode I completely dismissed Project Blue Beam as the rantings of a lunatic, and then I find this stuff. And what I always find interesting is that when I'm reading about this stuff, they never once reference Project Blue Beam, and when I was researching Project Blue Beam, they never once referenced the Pine Gap group, which makes me think that one or both are true. If these guys, if on these sites, they're like... Because, again, conspiracy theories were working in the dark back then. So nowadays, it's easy to go, Oh, did you know Miley Cyrus is an Illuminati agent? Look at all these websites that agree with me. Look at all this stuff that agrees with me. As opposed to, I have this theory that I'm going to come up with in Australia of these events these people saw. And then in Canada, you have someone else come up with the theory around the same time, and they're both parallel to each other, and they never reference each other it lends a little more credibility to it but then we get to richard saunders richard saunders and a, and a couple other researchers have really tried digging into the pine gap group and then we it's almost like disinfo at this point so you go ufo's are being seen around this isolated facility we know the cia runs it we know that it's used to spy on people and intercept radio waves and stuff like that and then someone else shows up and goes well actually you want to know what's really going on at pine gap Apparently, there's a 5.3 mile deep borehole right underneath Pine Gap facility that is holds a death ray to shoot aliens. That's a really good way to fight aliens. They're like, oh, you bastards. Bring your ships right over Australia and we'll show you. What? It doesn't really make sense if you can't rotate the planet at will. It's not the Death Star. But anyways, there's a death ray down there. It also can shoot up, apparently. This is actually a different conspiracy theory, but the, the borehole can shoot up vf frequencies all around the planet that actually extend 250 miles outside the atmosphere of the planet for what reason they don't really say they just say it's capable of doing that even the people who invented it they're like why did we invent this and they're like because we can they're like it doesn't it's not doing anything we don't even know if it works we just want to do it some people believe that in this 5.3 mile hole which probably doesn't even exist but there's a lot of conspiracy theories about this I don't really think it's safe to build a base (laughs) over a giant gaping hole in your planet. Some people believe in this hole it's where the elites are going to hide out at the end of the world. Some people believe it holds a supercomputer that's so powerful that Bill Clinton once went there. You can tell how old these conspiracy theories are. Bill Clinton once went there, and he can go up to the computer and go, Can you tell me about Jason Carpenter? And it's like, Jason Carpenter, podcast host, lives in Hood River, eats coconut oil, uh... You don't want to know what he does five times a day. Uh, he walks a lot. Like you can, this computer is so advanced. Based on all the spy information and its own advanced AI, it knows everything about everybody. You can ask it, "Hey, so uh, what does Britney Spears' kisses taste like?" And it's like, mm, "Tastes like vanilla and sapphire." Hmm, I didn't know Sapphire had a taste. Yes, yes, kiss Britney Spears, you'll find out. Be bop, boop. But anyway, it's like, it knows everything about everybody. Apparently, this is all, this is a very crowded hole, if you haven't already figured it out. Death Ray, Antenna Gun, a bunch of elites living down there. and Now it has a supercomputer. It also houses our Time Soldiers. So apparently, and again, I think this is the best way to wrap this up. Oh, there's all, there also has a Stargate to go to Mars. You can go to Pine Gap and then walk through a doorway and end up on mars and then suffocate. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. But apparently you can do that. You can you can walk into mars from Pine Gap. And in the future, soldiers are trained to fight the wars of today. You won't have laser guns in the past. It's the year 2018. It's like, "Oh yeah." Then after all of their training, they are sent back to Australia. Here's your orders. And they're like, what's this? They're like, oh, we need you to go sit in this base in Dusseldorf, Germany. It's like, okay. He just sits there. He's an MP. Why would you train soldiers in the future and send them back here where there's basically like no major conflicts? It seems like a total waste of resources. Total waste of resources to send these trained future tech Captain Power soldiers to Australia And then just have them like guarding posts in South Korea. Total, total waste. But I guess if you have a time machine, I mean, you're going to have to use it. You have to prove that your budget is worth something. So that is the story of Pine Gap. Maybe Sherry Schreiner wasn't as much as a nut job as I put her out to be. She obviously knew about these guys, and I didn't. Thanks, Alex F., for the recommendation. And just a little tip here. Just a little tip. Although Merrick did go to Finn McCool's cave and take a photo of it and visit it because of the podcast, don't visit this place. Don't be like, "Hey, don't get arrested by these time soldiers." You're standing in front of a portal and you're like, "Oh no, Dead Rabbit told me about your show. He knows everything about you guys." And they're like, "And they're like, oh, he, we already talked to the supercomputer. We know everything about Jason Carpenter." And then they push you into Mars. So yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. As curious as you are, okay. But let's go ahead and move on to our next story here. Now, our next story. Is part of our Too Good to Be True week, where we're going to talk about stories that you did not know were based on true stories, but actually were. And this one I actually knew about. Because I watched the commentary for... I love director's commentary for movies, or writer commentary or whatever. I love behind-the-scenes stuff. It's one of my favorite things. And I was watching the director's commentary for Nightmare on Elm Street, and it had the actress who played Nancy on there. It had... Wes Craven, the director, and I believe he wrote it as well. And then I think they had a producer and someone else. In the commentary for Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven says, this is based on a true story. This is based on a true story. And someone else goes, what? And they're like, yeah, yeah, this Nightmare on Elm Street is based on a true story. And he weaves this tale about what happened. Now, what I'm about to tell you is a reference a little bit in the show notes. But in the show notes, it mostly just refers to an interview he did for like Blend. When you watch the commentary, which is, again, the first time I heard about it, this is the version I heard. Back in the 80s, when he was living in L.A., there was a series of articles about these young Southeast Asian men dying in their sleep. What would happen is that they would start having horrible nightmares, and then they would tell their loved ones, I'm having the worst nightmares. I keep having these awful, awful nightmares. And eventually, they'd go to sleep, and they'd die in their sleep. And it was just these little art as one after another like a couple of them had passed away but after a, there was a pattern you'd see a little blurb in the newspaper West Craven would be like you know I was reading the LA Times and I'd see this little blurb and I go that's kind of creepy. And then eventually the LA Times ran a longer story in 1981 about one boy in particular. And again he was from Southeast Asia and he began having these nightmares and he says if I fall asleep I'm going to die. And his parents were really concerned and they take him to the doctor and they're trying to get him to sleep and they're trying to put sleeping pills in his stuff and he's like refusing it he's refusing treatment he's drinking a bunch of coffee he refuses to go to sleep he's like setting alarm clocks to go off at random times so he can't accidentally doze off he stays awake for four days and then finally in the end he falls asleep i think it was on the couch and the parents are like oh finally you know it's over and they take him to the bedroom and then they hear him yelling and they go in there and he's dead the end and Wes Craven was like, oh, that is an awesome horror movie. So he creates the character of Freddy Krueger. And it's funny because you're watching the commentary of this movie of this dude just butchering people. And you just in the middle of it, he's like, yeah. And he goes, the entire third act of the movie is based on that last article. Like, uh, Nancy gets taken to the hospital. I, I, it's funny because now I realize, I'm assuming all of you guys know what ni- the concept of Nightmare on Elm Street is. The, this monster, he probably has one of the best origin stories of any serial killer. His mom is raped by a hundred maniacs in an insane asylum. And this kid is born. And then he goes and gets a job at an elementary school. And he begins uh, molesting and murdering these kids, just one after another. He gets arrested for it. He gets off on trial, like on a technicality. He doesn't get convicted. He goes back to just to his shack that's outside of the school. And then the townspeople get together, form a vigilante mob, and burn him to death. And then... He gets his revenge by now killing everyone else's. All the people who killed him, he's killing their kids. That is, it's basically Clint Eastwood as a bad guy. Like that's a really great origin story for a villain. I can't really think of another another horror movie icon who has such a great origin story. I yeah, I think it's just really really well done. It's super creepy. He's basically feels he's been wronged. He's like, no, you should let me keep. It would be one thing if he was convicted. And he wasn't guilty. But no, no, he's like, oh, no, I love murdering kids. I'm, t- I'm totally down with that. The In the new remake, they actually explicitly said he was molesting them as well. In the original versions, it was just kind of implied. But yeah, he's basically like, he's not a wrongfully convicted spirit. He's a serial killer who wasn't done killing people. And now he's killing people's kids to get back at him. Very, very interesting origin story for a killer. But that's the concept. Is the story true, though? Wes Craven said he read these news articles. Do the news articles exist? Yes, you can still read them today. You'll see them in the show notes. Articles from 1981, 1988, documenting this stuff in the LA Times. The question is, is it a real syndrome? Does it really happen? Or are the articles just taking urban legends and crafting them into an article? Not only does it happen, it happens so regularly, it's been named by the medical community. This is absolutely bizarre. Originally, the designation of it was Oriental Nightmare Death Syndrome, because it almost exclusively targets Southeast Asian men. They all tend to be young. Their average age is 33, so that also fits with the idea of younger people being killed by this thing. But 18 to your 30s, 40s, around there. The medical community has no idea what causes this. It's now been termed sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome. So it's basically the adult version of a crib death or sudden infant death syndrome. But it targets a particular ethnic region. And the original working theory was you had the, all these young men who died in L.A. who were part of the story had just left Laos. They had just left Cambodia. They just left these the Vietnam War... You know, Americans pulled out, and it was still just a total quagmire, garbage heap over there, with all these regional warlords trying to consolidate power. There's death camps. You had Pol Pot. You had just these massive genocides, and people were leaving the country. So they figured that there must be a connection. These kids must have gone through so much stress in their young life that they're having heart attacks That's the thing. They're not even having heart attacks. They don't, they think that what could be happening is that their heart rhythm goes out while they're sleeping, which is technically a heart attack, but it's not ruled. A heart attack, you just go to bed and die. It's not rare either. 43, like in America, it's set up like this 43 per 100,000 people in these communities. Hmong, Cambodian, I think there's some from Vietnam. 43 out of 100,000 people. I had to do some context for that. I was like, that, that number, I don't know if that's high or low. That's four times the amount of automobile deaths in the United States per 100,000. Six times the murder rate and 20 times the amount of people who die of AIDS. 43 per 100,000 is incredibly high. It was like in the top four causes of death in these groups is bad. And what's weird is that none of the articles I read said, it said it peaked during the period right after the Vietnam War, but none of them said it's gone now. No one's saying that it's gone now. And that's in general for people from Southeast Asia. Among the Hmong, among the Hmong population, which we had a big Hmong population in Sacramento, 82 deaths per 100,000 people. And among just people in Laos in general, 92 per 100,000. So all of the, that would be 60 times the rate of people who die of AIDS. It's affecting this community. This medical community doesn't know what's causing this. But the people who are suffering from it know 100% what the problem is. 100%. People in this region tend to follow a, a religion, or I, I don't even know if you could classify it as a religion, but um, because it's not super like organized, but animism. So everything has a spirit. Everything has a place in the universe. The universe is full of life and all of this stuff. So they use shamans. Instead of ministers preaching to them, they use shamans to help them connect it to nature, keep with one with the universe. That's kind of hard to do when there's massive armies battling in your area. And regional warlords and all of this stuff. Now, the Hmong helped the U.S. troops control... They're very, very anti-communist. They're helping U.S. troops move stuff in and out of the area. They were kind of like guerrilla fighters and things like that. So when the United States left the area... They begin pulling people out of the country, saying, get on, get on, get on the helicopter. All that stuff. They were evacuating people, they were moving people out of the country. So you had massive amounts of people from Laos, Cambodia. You had specifically the Hmong people coming over as well. And they didn't fly a helicopter the whole way. But anyways, they come over. But when they get here, instead of you know how we have Chinatown and you have like a Harlem and you have these areas that where ethnic groups tend Little Italy, you have these places where ethnic groups tend to congregate. America was bringing these people from Southeast Asia to America and then just shipping them off to different cities. So they got spread out across 53 different cities. The Hmong language wasn't even written down until like four years before they were coming to America. So they knew their culture, but no one else really knew how to deal with them. And then all of a sudden you're just taking two, three families, sending them to San Antonio, two, three families... Sending them to Hood River. You're just moving people around. So they're completely cut off from their community. From anyone else who speaks their language. They started to coalesce in parts of California. I think Fresno has a large population. I know Sacramento does. Minneapolis has a large Hmong population now. But it took a while for them to kind of coalesce. Kind of hard to pick up the phone and call your people. If you don't know their phone number. You don't even know what state they're in. This is what the people who are suffering from this believe in. When they're not able to conduct their religious This is so bizarre. In their beliefs, when they're not able to conduct their religious practices, they are visited by a Dao Cha. Now, a Dao Cha is basically a nightmare. It's a personification of a nightmare. We have the old hag syndrome where it's the, the sleep paralysis and something sits on your chest. You can't breathe. And it's a scary nightmare. It causes sleep paralysis and things like that, but it doesn't kill you. The da Chow though, will. It takes the form that it's no... There's very, very little information on this in English. It's basically a jealous... A, a demon that's a jealous woman. And that's all I could find. I tried looking for, like, more history on this person. Super obscure. da Chow. Some people think that if you dress up... If you're male and you... What's weird, too, is that there's only been one female victim of this... Sudden, unexpected, nocturnal death syndrome. Only one female victim recorded. Everyone else has been dudes. The dad chow is this jealous woman spirit, and some people believe if you dress up like a woman before you go to bed, she won't come after you because she thinks you're a girl. And if you're not practicing your spiritual workings every single day, the dad chow will notice that and come to punish you. Like, it follows. It'll slowly walk to find you, it can sense that you're not doing what you need to be doing. But you have a bit of time because first you'll realize, you know, I'm not really doing what I need to be doing spiritually. I'm not doing my workings. I'm not worshiping the earth and the spirit as I should. You go to your shaman, and the shaman gets you back on the course, does some rituals, helps purify you, gets you back into where you need to be. But let's say you don't get to the shaman right away, you'll start to have these nightmares and they'll start to get progressively worse. And you know, That you're eventually, these nightmares will lead to your death. You know that whatever you're dreaming about is the chow coming towards you. So at that point, you really need to go to a shaman and get blessed and have him work his magic literally around you, protect you, and get you back to follow your religious beliefs. But you have a culture that's been evacuated from one continent, dropped on another, and spread out across 53 cities. You don't know where the shaman is. You have no way to find anyone. And that's not me being like poetically like, ooh, look how spooky I can make this. That's what they're saying. They're saying, this is what happened. We have to follow our beliefs or this demon will kill us in our sleep. And we don't know where the shamans are. We got pushed all over the country and we couldn't find our religious leaders. So we were dying off at 43 to 96 deaths per 100,000. Massive death rate. Now, like I said, they've started to coalesce into certain areas. So you would have a peak of these demonic deaths. And then as they started to reconfigure their culture and their society and were able to come together, you would know where the shaman was. Someone would be like, oh, he's in Minneapolis. And it's not just one. You have hundreds of them. But you know what I mean? Like, if you're dropped off in the middle of San Luis Obispo, you're not going to know anywhere where there's a shaman at. So to them, to the Southeast Asian communities that are suffering from this or suffered from it, again, there's nothing saying, but then it stopped. There's no resources saying it only happened right after Vietnam War. They're saying it peaked. There's nothing saying it's over with. They're saying, listen, we know it's not sudden. We know it's coming. It's not unexpected because we're not following our religion. And the medical community goes, well, maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. And these young men just we're dying part of me thinks that there has to be a medical reason for this some sort of genetic trigger in people from that region of the world it happens over there as well but not as high which could be we don't have the record keeping we don't have the medical facilities or the will to go over there and study this stuff or it could be that over there they follow the religion a little closer when they start having those symptoms those bad dreams they go oh Better go pray to a bunch of vines or whatever. But they don't have that opportunity here. We cover a lot of weird beliefs on this show. And the last article I read up about this said it's psychosomatic. It's that people believe in this religion so much that when they start to fall behind in it, they think it can kill them and it kills them. Case closed. It's all mental. And We cover a lot of weird beliefs. We cover a lot of cryptids. We cover a lot of demons and paranormal stuff. But I think this one... This one rings true, creepily enough. It rings a little true, don't you think? Like, it just seems like everything slots together so well. All the information I've talked about, it's all in the show notes. There's a ton of them. There have been a lot of resources dedicated to finding out what's killing the Southeast Asian men. But when it gets to the demon stuff, the trail just goes cold. We talk about angels and demons. We talk about demonic possession. We had that episode yesterday. We talk about all of this stuff. And people go, oh, that's faith, or, you know, that's real, or, you know, whatever. It's fake. It's a mental illness, all that stuff. But when we have a repetitive, verifiable death, cause of death, and people going, this is why it's caused. It's because of this paranormal event. At what point does the scientific community just keep shaking its head and going, no, 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 that's impossible? And then again... Even if they admitted it was true, what would you do about it? How would society have to restructure itself if they said, yes, if you are a Southeast Asian man and you don't pray to plants, you will be killed by a demon woman? Next up on the news, 49ers had a passing play. I don't know anything about football, but you know what I mean? Like If that was ever re- reported as fact, there, here's the thing. There's more evidence about this than there is evidence for Bigfoot. There's a cause and effect relationship here. There's verifiable, all these, there's just way more stuff to go on with this story. But knowing that Freddy Krueger is actually based on a real event, a real reoccurring event, before you shut your lights off and go to sleep tonight, think about that creepy story you heard as a kid, that scary movie you saw, that urban legend you heard once and just dismissed as terrifying, but not true. Think of those before you close your eyes. And then go, I wonder if that one was true too. radio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.